we should always ask ourselves or remind ourselves why we do certain things in clinical practice. I mean, if we order a test, the first question should be, one, is it even needed? Second, can the patient or the condition benefit from this? And then most importantly, of course, is, is it evidence-based? And that's exactly the kind of questions that Kimberly had when she sent me this Facebook message. Kimberly is an OBGYN physician, and she had a great point. She's like, look, we, we got to settle this thing out. Can you do something? Can you kind of review the evidence on hemoglobin A1C as part of the standard prenatal labs? I mean, should it? Am I missing something? And should I be checking for early diabetes in these patients that have obesity or potentially other risk factors? Where's the data on that? Now, if your first thought is, well, wait a minute, I thought we had bulletin on that from the college. We do, but it's not that easy. So in this podcast, I thought I'd cover this whole topic, not just about early diabetes screening, because you're going to be surprised what we find, what we cover in this podcast episode. But more importantly, what about hemoglobin A1C? Should that be part of just routine prenatal labs anyway? Because there's some that are advocating for that and others that are greatly pushing back. So let's cover early diabetes screening and pregnancy. Is that really evidence-based? Let's get into the what, whys, and how now. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Those who advocate for universal hemoglobin A1C testing early in pregnancy, I mean at the first prenatal visit or at their initial intake visit, or at least as part of the OB panel of labs, base that recommendation on the increasing rate of women who are overweight or obese in the U.S. However, is this evidence-based? Well, there is an answer for that, and I'm going to tell you what that is in just a moment. Well, let's make this an even broader question. It's not just about hemoglobin A1C. It's about early screening for GDM overall. I mean, should we even be testing these women? Now, again, as I mentioned in the intro, ACOG has a bulletin, and we're going to cover that. But it's a little different than what the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force said just in August of 2021. Yeah, just one year ago. Now, what I'm going to lay out isn't just about the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force because there's great evidence even coming out of MFM that maybe early screening is not what it's cracked up to be. And some of that MFM data came out this year in 2022. Ooh, controversy. I love it. All right, well, let's first start with the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force, okay? Remember, this was August 2021, and then I'm going to bring that into contrast with what ACOG states. And don't worry, I'm just going to lay out the two arguments. I'm going to let the two fighters in the ring, and then as referee, that's me, I'm going to tell you what you're allowed to do, or at least what seems evidence-based, according to the college. Everybody good? All right, fighter number one, the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. In their review of the data in August 2021, which was published in JAMA, they concluded that early screening for diabetes or impaired glucose tolerance was just not evidence-based. Now, hold on here a minute. I'm not talking about screening at all. No, no, you should screen for diabetes in pregnancy, okay? That's done between 24 and 28 weeks right now because that may actually change later. But anyway, right now, it's 24 to 28 weeks. And the thought of why it's done then is because at that point, Point, it is theorized that that's when the antagonistic effect of human placental lactogen really now has a role uh, in causing glucose impairment. 
But again, even that may not be accurate. I'm going to describe that in a minute. So again, no one is talking about not screening for diabetes in pregnancy. We're talking about early screening, remember, including things at the initial prenatal lab set or at that first contact. Should we be looking early? Well, we shouldn't, according to the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. In their conclusion, they stated, quote, current evidence is insufficient to assess the balance of benefits and harms of screening for gestational diabetes in asymptomatic pregnant women who are less than 24 weeks. Here's their actual quote from their review, again published in JAMA in August 2021. They say, quote, There is inadequate evidence that currently and commonly used screening tests developed for screening during mid or late pregnancy can accurately detect glucose intolerance earlier than 24 weeks. For benefits of early detection, intervention, and treatment, there is inadequate evidence that treatment of gestational diabetes earlier than 24 weeks can improve maternal and fetal outcomes, end quote. In other words, let's just summarize that very quickly. Look, these tests may not work in early pregnancy, and even if you find it and intervene, it's unclear if that actually changes the ultimate outcome. So just because you started diet or nutritional therapy or even metformin early on, nothing really changed. Wow, is that stunning or what? Remember, just one year ago, published in JAMA. Wait, I can hear you screaming at the podcast right now. I can. I can hear you in the car. Because you're saying, what do I care what the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force says? I mean, they're not women's health care specialists. They're not OBGYNs. They're not women's health care nurse practitioners or PAs. What do I care? Well, now, wait a minute. I understand that they may not be women's health care specialists, but there is evidence that supports their statements. Rodriguez et al. published the results of their randomized controlled trial revaluating the benefits of early GDM screening, and this was actually released on February the 4th, 2022. This was at the annual meeting of the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, which was the 42nd annual pregnancy meeting. So now we're up to this year, all right? So we covered 2021. We're now in February of 2022. In this study, the primary outcome was a composite of adverse perinatal outcomes, including perinatal mortality, neonatal hypoglycemia, admission to the NICU, hyperbilirubinemia, and birth trauma with a secondary outcome of maternal gestational weight gain. Well, what did this RCT show? The authors concluded after data analysis that early screening interventions in women at high risk for gestational diabetes, so this wasn't just random screening, these are women at risk for gestational diabetes, actually was not associated with any improvement in perinatal outcome. Although ACOG recommends screening obese women for early gestational diabetes detection, there's actually been no studies that demonstrate an improvement in perinatal outcome. Yikes. Now, you know me by now, right? I hope you do. You know I'm not going to rest something on just one study because Rodriguez is not alone. A separate RCT had already been published in 2019 out of the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Gray Journal. In its January issue of 2019, Harper et al. published another RCT. This included close to 1,000 women with about a 95% outcomes resulted. In other words, people weren't lost to follow-up. 954 women went in, and there was data for 912. That's pretty good. 
Following an almost identical design to the Rodriguez study, these authors concluded, again based on this level 1 evidence, that early GDM screening in obese women was not beneficial and may actually be harmful because it increased intervention with no change in the output. So they recommended that the GDM screening from the college, that's ACOG, be reassessed in light of these current findings. Oh, podcast family, I'm so sorry. I know that really messed with a lot of us because that's what we're trained to do, right? I mean, that's instilled in us. Early identification, early treatment and intervention to prevent outcomes that could be bad. That's all great when it works. But that may not be the case with gestational diabetes. And it's not just about that 2019 or 2022 data. It is from the holistic, the whole box of evidence, which is what the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force looked at and concluded early screening, it's just no value. Now, remember, it's not just early screening in general. It's early screening for those at risk. So not only did the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force ex-nay universal screening, but the exnated were those in which it possibly could really matter, those at high risk for diabetes. So the first question that we asked that we posed at the beginning of the podcast is, should we do this as part of routine prenatal labs? Well, if you listen to the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force and these two RCTs from MFM publishing authors, then the answer is no. But remember, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't screen for diabetes at all. We're just talking about early screening. Ooh, but remember, we said that sometimes we can just agree to disagree because ACOG does endorse early screening when appropriate. It doesn't recommend it for a universal testing. So I think we can put that to bed. So, Kim, your question was, should we do this routinely on everybody? Just throw it all out there for everyone. And the answer is no. But does ACOG recommend early screening for those at risk? The answer is yes, unlike the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force. So remember, in one corner, we had the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force and its team. While on the other corner, we have ACOG. Now let's talk about that. Let me try to appease the waters. I mean, ACOG is very evidence-based and definitely waits for the burden of evidence to make a recommendation. So why does ACOG still favor early screening for those at risk? Well, the answer is that there is evidence that there is a physiological benefit, and that's been well published, although possibly it's just not affecting outcome. So what is our goal, to affect a physiological change or to affect outcome? And the answer is really should be both. But it seems that while there may be a physiological maternal-fetal benefit, in other words, that based on glucose levels and early intervention, it may not change the big primary and secondary outcomes. Let me explain. The evidence supporting the adverse influence of glycemia and possibly other malnutrition or malnutritious events on fetal growth in early pregnancy does exist. Listen to this. Glucose has been the most investigated nutrient that promotes fetal insulin response and growth, although other nutrients like lipids and amino acids also have a role. Increased maternal glycemia has been directly associated with fetal excess growth earlier than 24 weeks. So there is some evidence there. When you actually track growth, we can actually see that it starts before 24 weeks of gestation. There was a large prospective study that included almost 2,500 participants who had longitudinal measures of fetal growth by ultrasound. The initial acceleration of fetal growth actually happened at around 20 weeks with gestational diabetes. Those were those who were diagnosed early. 
All right. Now, even though the majority of fetal fat accruement doesn't happen until the third trimester, we can see some altered fetal growth pretty early, starting as early as about 20 weeks. So the idea was that if we can do early screening and early implementation of preventative measures like nutrition and when necessary, pharmacological interventions, medications before 20 weeks, then we could get slower fetal growth. In other words, we move the bar down before 20 weeks when fetal growth seems to begin to become abnormal. And all that's proven. We know that that works. The problem is, as most of the fat is deposited in the third trimester, it's probably not enough to detect it early. That's why those two RCTs that we covered and the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force states, yep, you're doing something, you're doing something earlier, you're getting ahead of it, that's fantastic. But in the end, it doesn't really make a difference. So ACOG is siding on the side of conservatism that we rather identify early to potentially, that's just the catch, potentially, not actually, prevent the altered fetal growth early on because we're hitting the physiology of glucose metabolism in the child. But does it really change ultimate outcomes? Probably not. So let me be very clear. This proves that societal and expert guidelines don't always line up. But because I am an ACOG fellow and I help with the ACOG Obstetrical Care Committee and I love you know, the, the evidence and I, I, I do what the ACOG tells me to do, right now ACOG does favor early screening for those at risk. And I'm going to tell you who that is in a minute. But does that mean it's hemoglobin A1C? Well, there's something to say about that as well. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. First, let's take a look at one of the main risk factors identified by the ACOG for the development of GDM in which early screening is endorsed by the college. Of course, that's obesity. The following data that we're about to cover and summarize is taken from ACOG's practice bulletin number 230. This was released in June of 2021. But here's what's interesting, because there's actually a little disconnect between this practice bulletin on obesity in pregnancy and the practice bulletin dealing with gestational diabetes. I'll get into that in just a minute. But for now, let's focus on practice bulletin 230, which is obesity in pregnancy. Remember, of course, that obesity is classified based on BMI. And in the U.S., there's a big rise in the level of not just obesity, but as we stated in the intro, of women being overweight as well. Obesity is further subdivided into classes 1, 2, and 3. Remember that class 1 obesity is a BMI of 30 to 34, class 2, 35 to 39, and then class 3 is a BMI greater than 40. 
Let's camp out here with obesity just for a bit. Remember that obesity is a big modifiable risk factor for perinatal outcome risk. There's an increased risk of spontaneous abortion and recurrent miscarriage in obese women compared with age-matched controls. Obese women are also at increased risk of having pregnancy affected by neural tube defects, hydrocephaly, cardiovascular, oral facial, and limb reduction abnormalities. Just having obesity by itself. I'm not talking about with other comorbid conditions, just obesity. Compared with normal weight women, obese women are also at risk for cardiac dysfunction, proteinuria, sleep apnea, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, obviously gestational diabetes, which is what we're talking about here, and of course preeclampsia. Obese gravitas are also at increased risk for stillbirth. The stillbirth risk increases per obesity class. Even after controlling for other comorbid conditions, the hazard ratio for stillbirth is higher per level of obese classification. That's heartbreaking. Because of this increase in stillbirth risk, that's why ACOG recommends antepartum fetal surveillance in obese gravidas, but it's based on their obesity classification. For patients with pre-pregnancy BMI, remember that's pre-pregnancy, not current pregnancy, pre-pregnancy BMI, that starts at 35, in other words, class 2 or more, then weekly antenatal fetal surveillance should be considered beginning at 37 weeks. And for patients with pre-pregnancy BMI, that's 40 or greater, in other words, class 3, then weekly antenatal fetal surveillance should be considered beginning at 34 weeks of gestation. Notice there's no recommendation for antepartum surveillance with class 1 obesity. Of course, if there's other comorbid conditions like hypertension or diabetes, then that alters the schedule and initiation of antepartum fetal surveillance. But if we're talking about obesity as its standalone factor by itself, there's no recommendation for antepartum surveillance for obesity class 1, but there is starting for obesity class 2 at 37 weeks, and then for obesity class 3 starting at 34 weeks. Oh, and one more interesting tidbit about obesity as a standalone factor. Fetuses of obese gravitas are obviously at risk of macrosomia. Ironically, they're also at risk of fetal growth restriction. Yeah, it goes both ways. If they have other comorbid conditions that follows the obesity, like chronic hypertension or vascular disease from pre-existing diabetes, then they actually get altered fetal growth on the opposite direction for fetal growth restriction. So if somebody ever asks you, are obese gravitas at risk for macrosomia or fetal growth restriction? The answer is yes. If it's obesity by themselves, they're at risk for macrosomia. If obesity comes with friends and it alters the uterine placental circulation chronically, then it's a risk factor for fetal growth restriction. Man, I'm talking a lot. We got to wrap this thing up. Okay, so now let's cover what we really wanted to cover, which was early screening for gestational diabetes. So first of all, no call, nobody calls for a universal screening, but for obesity, that's a little different. The question is, how should we screen these women at all? What test should we use? Is it hemoglobin A1C? Well, again, I'm going to give you that answer in a minute. But here's a little bit of disconnect between the two ACOG bulletins that I referenced a little while ago. Remember that there's ACOG's Practice Bulletin 230, which is obesity and pregnancy, and then there's Practice Bulletin 190, which is on gestational diabetes. So here's a little disconnect. In the Practice Bulletin 230, dealing with obesity and pregnancy, the college recommends, quote, obese pregnant women should be screened for glucose intolerance at the first antenatal visit with history, physical exam, and laboratory and clinical studies as needed, end quote. Okay. Well, that sounds fine. Obese women should be screened. Fine. 
But in Practice Bulletin 190, which is on gestational diabetes, ACOG actually gives a little qualifier. It states, quote, Early pregnancy screening for undiagnosed type 2 diabetes, preferably with initiation of prenatal care, is suggested in overweight and obese women who have additional diabetic risk factors. In other words, obesity must be accompanied by one other item or event. Is that weird? So in one bulletin, it's just obesity by itself. In another bulletin, it's obesity with friends. Well, what are those friends? Well, if any one of these following things are also present, then ACOG says you should screen in one practice bulletin. In the other one, it says just screen obesity overall. So here's a list of other comorbid issues according to the bulletin on gestational diabetes. Physical inactivity, a first-degree relative with diabetes, if they're a high-risk race, which is African-American, Latino, Native American, Asian-American, or Pacific Islander. If they have a previous birth of a child of 4,000 grams or 4 kilos or more. If they have a history of previous gestational diabetes, hypertension, they have abnormal lipoprotein cholesterol or hypertriglyceridemia. If they have PCOS, a hemoglobin A1c greater than 5.7 as a historical lab test, or if they have evidence of insulin resistance like acanthosis nigricans, or if their BMI is overtly off like a category 3 obesity, or if they have history of cardiovascular disease. All right, so two different practice bulletins. One lists obesity by itself for early screening, and the second lists obesity with one of those other factors. Now that we've laid all that, what do we do? What do I do? Well, realizing that there is some controversy whether or not there's benefit to early screening for those at risk, I follow what the current recommendation is from the college, and that's to screen early for those with diabetes. Now, I screen early in those with diabetes alone because in my population, most don't have diabetes as a standalone issue anyway. They tend to have other issues or high-risk race, their physical inactivity, they have some form of hypertension or a first-degree relative. It's not hard to find another comorbid condition as referenced in Practice Bulletin 190. So I do screen. However, that early screening may change because ACOG is kind of evaluating all this new data that's kind of popping up like a whirlwind. And it also may change when we screen for gestational diabetes to begin with. Right now, it's 24 to 28 weeks, but that may change as new data comes from the UK from those wearing continuous real-time glucose monitoring. Maybe 24 to 28 weeks is actually too late, and we've got to move down that initial universal screening time a little bit lower. But that's not yet a thing. So yes, I do screen early because that's what the college tells me to do, knowing that that may change a little bit later. All right, Kim, now that we've established that it's okay to screen for early diabetes for those at risk, so not universal screening, only for those at risk, and obesity is one of those risk factors, then the question is, well, what's the best way to do it? Well, Kim, here's the answer. The best test for early GDM identification is actually not clear. Testing that can be used to diagnose type 2 in pregnancy early can include the 75-gram one-step test or an early two-step test. Others use the hemoglobin A1c value, as Kim mentioned in her question and we reviewed at the beginning of the podcast, and that is endorsed by the American Diabetes Association. 
However, in pregnancy, it's actually not that favored because it has decreased sensitivity compared with an oral glucose tolerance test. So again, while there's no universal test for early diabetes screen in pregnancy, and it's not clear which test actually performs better than the other, hemoglobin A1c, while allowed, actually is not preferred by OBGYNs or Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. Even if the results of early testing are negative, GDM screening, of course, is still recommended at the current recommended time of 24 to 28 weeks. As our last point before we close this thing up, remember, don't ignore impaired glucose tolerance in pregnancy. That's not good either. While it's important to meet diagnostic criteria, whether you're doing the one-step or the two-step approach for gestational diabetes, impaired glucose tolerance is also not good. If you're looking at a hemoglobin A1c value, remember that that's between 5.7 and 6.5. And on the two-step, getting one abnormal value on the diagnostic 3-hour 100-gram glucose tolerance test, one abnormal value there is impaired glucose tolerance. And that's not good either. Don't ignore them. Put them on a nutritional plan and have them check their sugars as well. Impaired glucose tolerance in pregnancy does lead to adverse pregnancy outcomes. That was the HAPO study. That's H-A-P-O. This was an international hyperglycemia and adverse pregnancy outcome study that was funded by the NIH. And it was also done in cooperation with the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, or the NIDDK. This was published in New England back in 2008. Impaired glucose tolerance is also a risk factor, once again, for adverse neonatal outcomes. So if they have a true formal diagnosis of GDM, obviously get them involved and get them treated, but don't ignore impaired glucose tolerance diagnosed either with hemoglobin A1c or with one abnormal value on the diagnostic 3-hour 100-gram test. Now, hopefully you've heard that one abnormal value in the three hours is not good. Okay, that is impaired glucose tolerance. If you want the reference for that, that was actually published as a meta-analysis and systematic review back in 2016. The title of that was Single Abnormal Value on Three-Hour Oral Glucose Tolerance Test During Pregnancy and Its Association with Adverse Maternal and Neonatal Outcomes. This was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology. All right, Kim, so that's the answer. Boy, that was long-winded. So, should we do a universal screen for hemoglobin A1c in pregnancy? No, nobody calls for a universal screening. But for those that have obesity or obesity with friends, in other words, other comorbidities, ACOG does currently still recommend early screening, while others do not. So I guess it depends on who you listen to. And as OBGYN and women's healthcare providers, I guess we default with ACOG. But this is an evolving topic. Remember, universal screening is done for gestational diabetes at 24 to 28 weeks. But there is no universal early screening for diabetes. But it is recommended by the college for those with obesity or obesity with other risk factors. And should we use hemoglobin A1c or not? That's totally allowed, but it's not as sensitive as other tests. And don't forget about the importance of impaired glucose tolerance. All right, that's it. We'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.